Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about psycho-oncology with Dr. Shannon Mazur. Dr. Mazur is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Shannon, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm currently working as a psycho-oncologist at the Cancer Center, and um, my background got me here. I have uh, always been interested in medicine and human interactions from a young age and um, at some point along the way got heavily involved in bioethics. And it led to me having a master's degree in bioethics and then taught in the field for quite a few years before actually going to medical school. And when I was involved in bioethics, that led to a deep interest in end-of-life care and some of the issues that come with end-of-life care and uh, inevitably hospice care, palliative care, and how we um, handle people who are seriously ill. And all of my um, work along the way led to me becoming a psychiatrist, uh, going through medical school, and then eventually doing a fellowship within um, consult medicine for psychiatry and following up with that with working specifically within cancer patients in psychiatry and the field of psycho-oncology. And um, that's where I, I reside now and um, have both uh, work that is inpatient and outpatient work. Um, psycho-oncology can be thought of as um, working within the hospital and also uh, there's aspects to it that are done as an outpatient and the continuity of care that can come with those that are not currently hospitalized. So so let's pick up on that conversation at that point. So, you know, for many of our, the people in our audience, we may not be completely familiar with the field of psycho-oncology. Many of us know about medical oncology or surgical oncology, radiation oncology. What exactly is psycho-oncology? So psycho-oncology first came about around the 1970s in Western countries um, and, and Western culture. And it came about that there used to be um, cancer as a, a diagnosis was was kind of a, a stigma. It wasn't talked about as much. And there became this movement within the 1970s where there uh, patients were starting to have more conversations about it, having um, uh, integrating in uh, more aspects of uh, social aspects into to their care and really not having kind of uh, what was once deemed just as this death sentence uh, and, and able to um, talk more about it amongst um, uh, providers, society, family members. And so the the field of psycho-oncology first started to get its roots around that time in the 1970s and then kind of sprang from there. So a relatively new field, um, but I, even more so, I would say, in the last 20 years has started to become integrated into most of um, the larger cancer hospitals um, at, at, because there became this uh, uh, no knowledge that within the field of psychology that the main two um, aspect is that it's studying the impact of behavior and psychosocial factors on cancer and cancer morbidity and mortality, and also the flip side of that, which is how psychological influences um, can influence cancer. So seeing both um, how behavior influences cancer, but how cancer influences our behavior and our, our, our mental health. And so 
psycho-oncology um, really kind of integrates in both aspects of that, um, showing that beyond just the medical treatment, uh, it, there's there's this whole other aspect to cancer care and treatment that we need uh, to be examining and to bring in as part of a kind of a holistic approach to cancer. We know that um, that kind of depending upon what source you look at and, and what, what research paper, but the kind of common number that is most most commonly seen is that about 35% of patients uh, who have cancer diagnosis will at some point have a psychiatric uh, disorder or diagnosis within the tra trajectory of their treatment. So whether that's kind of at the beginning, um, whether that's through the treatment or transitioning through survivorship and end of life care, but about 35%. And um, I, I almost think that that is somewhat of a, a low number, um, but that's really kind of getting to those who, who meet to the actual kind of disorder diagnosis. And um, we see that this number continues to uh, increase in the sense that we have medical progress showing, you know, having more survivors being able to um, uh, survive through the cancer at longer periods of time. And then also just the fact that we, we see the increased life expectancy leading to a higher number of cancer patients in general. Um, so this, this number has continued to grow and is becoming, um, as I mentioned, kind of more integrated into um, many of the larger uh, cancer hospitals. So that's interesting that 35% of cancer survivors will have a uh, psychiatric diagnosis. Certainly, as you pointed out, the impact of cancer can be um, quite significant in terms of a patient's mental health. I mean, certainly, I think many of our listeners can imagine that if given a, a diagnosis of cancer, one may face anxiety or depression. Um, but th that may be more so attributed to the diagnosis itself and and being able to cope rather than a, a disorder of, you know, transmitters uh, in your brain. Can, can you talk a little bit more about um, the diagnosis uh, that's made in these 35% of cancer survivors and and whether that's a transient thing or whether there actually is an impact on neurotransmitters that needs to be dealt with in a, in a pharmacologic manner? That's a great question. And I, I think uh, it's a multifold answer. And part of that is that um, we obviously within that 35%, there are um, patients who have already had pre-existing mental health issues. So somebody who struggled with anxiety or depression throughout their entire life, um, that they're included in that 35%. All right. So we know there are people who, um, whether it was kind of already genetically predisposed or had, um, you know, had kind of an organic um, presentation throughout their life um, that that will will also either have a worsening of their symptoms or just a continuation of their symptoms through their cancer diagnosis. But uh, the other side of that is um, what I think you're getting at is there's you know a large percentage of of that uh, of this population has no prior psychiatric history, has never seen a psychiatrist or a therapist, never considered themselves to struggle with anxiety or depression, who. Are, are now uh, in this situation with cancer and finding that they're starting to have some of those symptoms. And so we can look at it as kind of an acute um, aspect and, and then also kind of looking at the, uh, the more long haul and, and kind of some changes that, that may come. And so acutely, uh, 
many patients, of course, have kind of an adjustment to this. Finding out of, of, of a cancer diagnosis is, can be very shocking, can be very distressing, can um, bring up a whole lot of emotions, and that's to be expected from anybody. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a mental health issue or that there is um, a, you know, need for uh, medication or intervention. It just means that uh, quite frankly, you're, you're um, kind of normal. And that's, uh, that's what to, to be expected with having such a, a large um, diagnosis or, or um, revelation to happen. But what, what some patients will have is that this will then continue on. It's not just that kind of initial shock or that initial adjustment. And it, it can actually lead to what we would then qualify as an adjustment disorder. And when, when, that would mean is that it would be um, a, a continued presence of the symptoms, whether that um, was depression or anxiety um, or, or other symptoms that could come with it, um, leading to the to it be now interfering with their ability either to have a quality of life, uh, to attend appointments, to go about their daily life, to the point where it's actually interfering with their their ability to function as they had been from a, from a mental health standpoint. Of course, there's going to be physical effects from the cancer or cancer treatments that are also weighing in there, but it's, uh kind of focusing more on the impact that their mental health is at that point having on them. Now, there are also um, different types of cancers that can lead to changes in kind of the more uh, neuronal, uh, you know, serotonergic, uh, um, hormonal as well uh, impact. So leading that can actually cause an, an organic um, change in the body that would lead to this. So not just necessarily their, their adjustment to it, but rather something that is a direct result from having the cancer. So for instance, um, obviously within a certain time, type of brain tumors or neurologic tumors, there can be changes in personality leading to either depression or anger or anxiety that has actually come from a physical change that has occurred in the body due to the cancer. Um, there can also be changes that occur due to um, treatments. So for instance, uh, tamoxifen and uh, some of the aromatase inhibitors, some of the treatments that we use for breast cancer are known to cause these, these changes within women that can lead to anxiety, depression, agitation, insomnia, some of the symptoms we start to see. So it is, it's, it's multifold in the sense that that 35% uh, carries people who have already had prior diagnoses, uh, patients who are just having a hard time adjusting to the diagnosis, and then patients who have actually had some sort of physical change in their body, whether that be due to the cancer itself or due to the treatments um, that are that lead to, the, to some of their symptoms. And I would imagine that your approach in terms of treatment um, is different between all of those groups. So um, there may be differences in how you approach somebody who is uh, struggling with mental health issues, who has brain metastases or a, uh, a, an actual physiologic uh, anatomic uh, issue versus somebody who is just really struggling with the diagnosis and, and trying to come to terms with that and trying to deal with the emotions that come with the uh, diagnosis of cancer. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how your approach may be similar or different in different, in different uh, groups of patients? 
Absolutely. Yep. You're, you're absolutely correct there. Um, there's different factors uh, that come into play with each person, right? So there, it's definitely not a cookie cutter um, experience. It, you know, if, there's many different factors that lead to how a patient, um, how we're going to approach uh, treating a patient and, and what sort of needs the patient may have. And you, you touched on kind of one of the big things, which is obviously the type of cancer. So um, we, the difference between having um, a, a brain tumor versus having uh, lung cancer, you know, and what that means for their presentation from a a mental health perspective. But there's other factors that also play into that, that some um, biological and and some kind of uh, situational. So the the biological ones could be, you know, family history of having uh, psychiatric illness before and how that might affect them. We use that sometimes when we're trying to select what type of medications might be helpful, helpful for them if a family member had uh, had success on uh, one type of medication. There's um, research and, and data to show that there there may be a link to them having a, a benefit from that medication as well. So we might start with that medication. Um, those who have kind of uh, prior psychiatric history or are predisposed to having worsening symptoms, unfortunately. So there, the we would treat uh, those patients with that in mind as well. And then a, a huge part of it can also come with where they are in their life. Um, what what um, what their ages and and what their functioning was prior to having this diagnosis and how that impacts them with their um, kind of mental state of, of either acceptance or uh, difficulty with coping with with the diagnosis and uh, some of that can also be what stage of cancer they're at so somebody who finds out that they have advanced cancer and is already you know at stage four and um, treatment options are very limited or not at all will have a much different um, uh, impact of how we're going to treat them versus somebody who's in earlier stages has a lot of options. We're really looking to try to the long haul of hopefully many, many years ahead of them versus acutely stabilizing them. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, it's a very complex field, uh, psycho-oncology, uh, and one that we still need uh, to unpack. So we're going to dive further into this whole issue right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the benefits of psycho-oncology with my guest, Dr. Shannon Mazur. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program includes a colon cancer genetics and prevention program that provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening. SmiloCancerHospital.org. Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE-2 trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Shannon Mazur. 
We're discussing the benefits of psychooncology, and right before the break, Shannon had mentioned that about 35% of cancer survivors have some sort of a mental health diagnosis, whether that was a pre-existing diagnosis, whether that was, you know, adjustment disorder from just having difficulty getting over the concept of cancer. Um, Two, whether there is actually a a functional anatomic impairment in patients with brain tumors or metastases or issues with treatment that could affect uh, the brain. So, Shannon, you had mentioned that psycho-oncology is a relatively new field, started in about the 1970s. You know, when I think about um, the number of people who are diagnosed with cancer every day, everywhere, all over the country, you can't help but imagine that many of those patients are struggling with the diagnosis. And it may or may not actually reach the level of an adjustment disorder, but many of these patients may not be near a dedicated psycho-oncologist. Are there things that you would advise patients or their family members to do in terms of helpful hints to try to get over the adjustment to that diagnosis? That's a great question. And, you know, hopefully most places do at least have a connection to a a social worker. Um, So the first thing is I would say speak up (laughs) if you're because you're not alone and you're not the first person uh, going through cancer treatments that have have had these sort of reactions. It it is very normal. And that's one thing I I really try to express to anybody that I meet is that uh, if you've never had this problem before, doesn't mean that this diagnosis hasn't kind of rocked your world in a sense. Um, and so to, to speak up and to discuss that either with your oncologist or with your primary care provider or with if, if you are able to get connected with a social worker because they can hopefully help direct you to um, resources if needed. And and I we do kind of think of this in a, a pyramid in the sense that um, everybody's most likely going to have some reaction to the diagnosis. And so that's, um, you know, kind of the, the large end of the pyramid um, where everybody's um, and it has this discussion with their oncology provider and, and is able to have some processing. And, and we realize that uh, kind of as you move along, there might be some that need to talk to a social worker. And then if that's not enough, maybe getting connected to group therapies. Uh, because of the pandemic, that there are many group therapies that are out there, um, either through your hospital system or oncology provider, or kind of just in general, um, people can join. Um, kind of moving along the, the line there, though, getting to the point of actually needing a, a psychologist or uh, some type of therapist or counselor to be able to discuss the, their issues. And then thinking kind of at the top of that period would be getting actually to the psychiatrist. So somebody that would actually need medication management to try to um, help with their um, the, the symptoms that they're having. So um, the, the first is always just uh, speak up, communicate, whether that's just with your provider or with your family members, because uh, trying to go through this in isolation is is difficult, if not impossible. And so that there are can be other resources um, available, but then also realizing that there are ways to kind of work through this ladder, if you will, to be to get to um, the level of, of need or assistance that you can um, that you actually need. 
Yeah, great, great points in terms of actually speaking up, because even if you can't access a a psycho-oncologist right from the get-go, you know, having somebody to talk to, your family doctor, a nurse navigator, a social worker, somebody, um, they can often help um, and or escalate as the case may be. Now, Shannon, before the break, you had mentioned kind of two aspects of uh, psycho-oncology. The first is how cancer affects um, behavior, it affects mental health, and and we've kind of dived into that a bit. But the other is, um, is, is how mental health can affect cancer. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we know that within uh, mental health, there that can lead to changes in our behavior, changes in our social interactions, changes in um, the way we're able to, um, you know, kind of process and work through life. And so when somebody's in you know, mental distress or um, uh, mentally unwell, that can impact their ability to follow through with items that are uh, for their cancer treatment. So in other words, if somebody is uh, too anxious and, and suffering from very severe anxiety and, and not able to make it to their appointments because they're too panicked at the thought of um, going to the appointments or leaving their house and they and therefore they, they don't follow up with their treatments and, and they're not able to um, you know get, complete the, the recommended treatments or, or show up for the, the radiation or whatnot. Um, same same aspect could be with um, depression. If, if somebody is uh, having such severe depression that they're not able to get out of bed, to uh, try to eat some food, to try to stay hydrated, to be able to, um, you know, again, go to their appointments, things like that. We, we find that, that, that those psychological factors then end up having an impact on your oncological, uh, you know, uh, prognosis. If, if you're not able to take the medications, if you're not able to show up to the appointments, if you're not able to participate in, in care planning, um, you're going to have worse prognosis with your cancer. That And, and that is something that, that we know and we have um, been able to kind of study and, and see that there can be um, an uh, increased uh, uh, increase in, in longer survival, um, better uh, rates of compliance, better um, prognosis, if we're able to have a more steady mental health. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, and I think it, it, it uh, seems to be common sense, that there are patients who have a pre-existing diagnosis of mental health issues who may also get cancer. What proportion of cancer patients already have um, a mental health uh, diagnosis? So that's uh, that's another one of those that's kind of up to, for debate, depending upon which uh, resource and, and uh, data you're looking at. But um, we, we say that about one fourth of all um, patients in America will have a mental health disorder at some point. And so if we if you want to think of that within kind of that 35 percent um it's, so it's kind of a, it is a little bit of a, a convoluted way to look at it, but I, you know, I would say the majority of patients might have had some um, history of either some mild anxiety or depression, uh, and and that that gets exacerbated through the diagnosis. Um, but if it, they, uh, and, and unfortunately, we also have a lot of patients who um, kind of had undiagnosed uh, psychological problems that had 
been there throughout their life as well. So it's it's kind of hard to give you a specific number, but um, you know, I, I would say I, I personally in my clinic kind of see half and half, and and I think that that might be um, somewhat um, standard. Uh, to, to kind of realize that you already have a, a, a about a fourth of the population that already has it, but there is no direct um, correlation to saying that just because you had a, a pre-existing mental health condition that you are more susceptible to having a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, but certainly if you if you have a mental health diagnosis, say schizophrenia or um, a, a different uh, uh, disorder, bipolar, etc. It may really affect um, you in terms of getting through the cancer journey. I mean, it's hard enough for for people without that diagnosis, but then it just adds in an extra layer of complexity. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you may or may not interact with the patient's already established healthcare team in terms of their mental health, their psychiatrists, et cetera? Yeah, one of the biggest problems that, that is it, it comes with the follow follow up and being able to have them connected to consistent uh, treatments because if they're not um, established within a um, kind of a stabilized on medications or with a, a stable living environment, then unfortunately once they're they're discharged to have follow up for. Um, for their uh, therapies and treatments that it's very hard to have them kind of come back. So we do see a significant uh, number of patients with what we would consider serious mental health issues, um, uh, as you're kind of mentioning the schizophrenia, um, kind of the, the psychotic spectrum, having a, a much harder time with the follow-up and the close care. And so there are uh, efforts that are put in to try to help stabilize those, making sure that rides are set up ahead of time, trying to get them into a, a stable living situation if if, um, if they are um, unhoused or, or um, if they're not already connected to a, um, a psychiatrist or an outpatient um, treatment facility, making sure that we can try to get them stabilized on psychiatric medications because we find that if if we're able to get some of their um, symptoms, mental health symptoms better under control, then they will have better outcomes with their cancer treatments and, and have better follow through. And so looking at, you know, kind of what's the best medication regimen for them to, to make it so that they will remain on their medications and, and try to have follow up. Um, so it's, uh, it, it can be it can make their cancer treatment um, difficult in the sense of making sure that follow-up is probably one of the biggest factors, but um, we, we do use that kind of collaborative care approach to, to really get as many people involved as possible. When we think of the collaborative care approach um, within psycho-oncology, really kind of getting social work involved, the psychologist involved, the um, advanced practice providers, um, having kind of the direct communication with the oncology team, streamlining communication, simplifying for the patient as much as possible and, and trying to get wraparound care for the patients um, who unfortunately sometimes come in unhoused, uninsured, um, not having financial resources and seeing what we can do to help help that patient population. You know, the other question that, that comes up is there's a lot of stigma around mental health diagnoses. Um, and, you know, I wonder whether um, you get pushback from patients and their families saying, you know, I, I really don't need 
a, a psychiatrist. I, I'm not crazy. I'm just, you know, I have cancer. And how does the stigma of a mental health diagnosis affect um, patients who are going through cancer, patients who may need psycho-oncology services, um, and, you know, their, their kind of re-entry or, or continued existence in society with, with the stigma that sometimes is associated with mental health diagnoses? Yeah, unfortunately, that is a, a, a very true. <laughs> we see it time and time again, um, and, and that stigma is still there. And it, it, I think we're making some great strides within society, but it absolutely comes up um, time and time again. And I think the biggest impact it has is delayed care. Uh, patients will kind of fight or put off being connected to a, a psychiatrist or psychologist um, until it's there. there's kind of a, a point where intervening, uh, it, where somebody has to intervene. Um, and, and that may come when they're hospitalized. Um, I do get uh, connected to patients frequently when they're in the hospital because the distress becomes kind of paramount to them needing to get connected to me. But I think the biggest problem is there are ways to help and it, it and it's um, not speaking up or not accepting that care delays that. And many of the medications do take several weeks to, to take effect. And so just kind of continues to push off getting the care that could be helpful for them. Dr. Shannon Mazur is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.